0: What's it like to write in somebody else's voice to become that person?
1: It was interesting for this because Grendel's mother is, like, not at all a human character. So I kind of tried to flip around, like, what we might think are important or human ideas about stories or legacy and how someone who's just, like, completely unnatural to our mind and, like, just thinks in a completely different way might view things that we think are central to stories.
0: Welcome to Voices of the Future. I'm Stuart Kestenbaum. In this series, I'm interviewing young writers and poets from Maine, all of whom have participated in programs of the Telling Room, a nonprofit writing center in Portland. The Telling Room's mission is to empower youth through writing and to share their voices with the world. All of the authors in the series are featured in A New Land, an anthology of 30 poems written at the Telling Room. When I read or hear the work of these writers, I am moved by their enthusiasm, skill, and courage some of them were born in Maine, others have come here from Africa and the Middle East. I'll speak with urgency about their lives and their futures. Lulu Racer graduated from Yarmouth High School, and now she's a student at Oberlin College. She published her poetry collection, An Open Letter to Ophelia, through The Telling Room's Young Emerging Authors Fellowship. In this episode, Lulu and I talk about reimagining mythological and fictional characters with a modern voice. First, she reads her poem, Grendel's mother takes the mic.
1: Grendel's mother takes the mic. Listen up. I don't care for your petty battles, your forgettable epics. Your tongues can't pronounce my name, so don't even try. They say to name a thing is to tame a thing, so I'm safe from domestication. Just hand me that mic while you still can. A tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye, might not be your class of justice, but I make my own rule beneath the murk and algae over silver-darting slashes and the endless sway of reeds. Where's your hero now, safely sleeping in dreams of victory? Your swords and soldiers can't hold me. I line my kitchen with the bones of kings. I won't pretend I'm here for parley or peace. We don't have diplomacy down in the mud and sludge. Teeth are the only treaty I know. I'm unnamed, untamed, unnatural, unloved, because I know the silent death of womanhood. Mother, sister, wife, daughter, lover, princess, queen. They stitch the world together when your honor slashes it apart. But who knows their names now? Tell me how it's worthwhile to follow rules when all you get is a gouge in the family tree. Names are overrated. Legacy's a scam. That's the truth you only find alone at the bottom of a lake. And here's a secret. Wicked witches always have more fun. I'm going down, but I'll claw my way into your epics anyway nameless as I am.
0: Thank you. That's such a a powerful poem. When did you write it?
1: I wrote it senior year of high school when I was part of the Young Emerging Authors program after I read Beowulf.
0: There's so many lines that I love, like teeth are the only treaty I know. You're writing in the voice of Grendel's mother from another work of literature. So was it the first time you'd done that?
1: I think I'd written other poems that were from similar perspectives like from the point of view of a mythological character Mm -hmm. but I think it was the first time that I tried for sort of a more modern voice almost because I had almost this image of Grendel's mother like literally doing slam poetry which is why it's called Grendel's mother takes the mic and I kind of wanted to add sort of this like modern boldness to her voice which is why she doesn't use like very old sounding language. I wasn't intending to start out writing a poem about Grendel's mother when I read Beowulf. I was just kind of like I own a copy of this, trying to research some mythology for this book. It's not super long. I'll read it and see if anything comes up. And I read the whole story and I was like not feeling a huge spark of inspiration because it's just kind of traditional hero kills monster, hero kills another monster, hero kills another monster story. Um, But then I turned to the back of the book where there was a family tree and I noticed that there were all of these blanks in the family tree where it would say um, a named male character married to unnamed wife. And then he had an unnamed daughter and then his son was named or something. And I noticed that like pretty much all the people who didn't have names in the family tree were women. And then I was like, oh, wow, even Grendel's mother, who is like arguably the most important female character, is defined by being someone's mother. She doesn't have a name of her own. And I kind of started wondering, is having no name a bad thing? It kind of means you're not defined by the narrative, but it also means you might not have a story so eventually I just kind of started writing about that, and I wanted to write about Grendel's mom not having a name in relation to all the other women in the story who remain nameless.
0: When you started to write about Grendel's mother, well, you started with Listen Up. How did that flow for you? Did Do you remember the kind of the flow of your, your process?
1: Well, I remember that I wanted to start the poem with Listen Up because Beowulf starts with Listen because it was originally like an oral story that was written down, presumably, so... Someone saying listen is literally like, okay, listen up, people, I'm going to tell a story, like I'll gather around the fire and I'll tell the story of Beowulf. So I wanted to start the story with listen up, which is sort of like a more modern take on that with the idea that it is like something that she's saying. And I remember I wanted to discuss kind of like the physicality of living at the bottom of a lake in parts because it really hammers home the fact that she's not human because she literally lives at the bottom of a lake, which is why I wanted to write lines like beneath the murk and algae. And I also kind of wanted to explore the idea that, like, she's not human, which is why she discusses teeth at one point, lining her kitchen with the bones of kings. I was kind of interested in the way that, like, she physically exists in this different location that the hero has to go invade in order to kill her. But I also just wanted to write a character who's, like, very unapologetic and defiant in the way she talks, which is why, like, there's no apologies. She's like, I'm kind of wicked and, like, I enjoy it. I get to be in the story because I'm the villain if I was kind of quiet I might not be here at all. Like, she's kind of proud of the fact that she's a villain because it means that she ended up in the story.
0: Yeah. It definitely feels like uh, just from the very start of it, it's like she's there. You know, there's a real presence.
1: Yeah. I really wanted to write her as like a very unapologetic there character because she's, you know, pretty badass in the story because she's sort of the final boss that Beowulf fights because he kills Grendel. And he's like, oh, we're all good. Like, I, I saved the day I killed the monster. I'm the hero. Oh, no, the mom is coming for revenge. So I wanted to write a character that kind of embodies that same, like, very powerful idea. She's powerful not only in her actions, but in her words.
0: And you gave her a voice.
1: Yeah, which is interesting. The retelling of Grendel that I'm reading right now, she can't speak, which I thought is interesting. It's from Grendel's perspective, and he's very literate and can talk and thinks about the world. But in John Gardner's Grendel, his mother is kind of this, like, illiterate animalistic monster, which is interesting. It's such an opposite take on the Grendel's mother character that's kind of interesting to read about.
0: What's it like to write in somebody else's voice to become that person?
1: It was interesting for this because Grundle's mother is, like, not at all a human character. We don't know what she looks like exactly, but she's definitely not, like, a regular woman who just lives at the bottom of a lake for some reason. Um, So I kind of tried to lean into that, this idea that, like, she doesn't necessarily have, like human values or ideas, which is why she says stuff like teeth is the only treaty I know, or the way she kind of rejects like this very human idea of legacy or names being important. So I kind of tried to flip around like what we might think are important or human ideas about stories or legacy and how someone who's just like completely unnatural to our mind and like just thinks in a completely different way might view things that we think are central to stories.
0: Something about it like just feels very authentic. Thank you. But this also, like, there's just a certainty to her voice. Have you uh, continued to write in other people's voices?
1: Actually, not as much. Um, one of the things I've been kind of trying to push myself as a writer is to, like, instead of occupying the voices of other people, kind of try to write from my experiences and words. Because for the book I wrote, Through Young Emerging Authors, An Open Letter to Ophelia, a lot of the poems were me, like, inhabiting other stories or other characters, even if I was kind of putting my own perspective Or imagining how they're related to my own life. Ophelia is the lover of the main character in Hamlet and at the start of the story she's kind of scorned by the main character. Um, Eventually she loses her brother and her father and she drowns. It's potentially a suicide but no one's really sure in the story. I wanted to explore the character from her perspective rather from that in the play where she's like sort of treated like an object and bad things happen to her and the people she loves and eventually she dies. So I was kind of curious, like, she's not the main character, but what would she say if she kind of had a chance to go on long monologues like Hamlet does? But um, I did that for a while, and I was like, this is kind of fun, but now I want to try and imagine, like, how I can write from my own words and perspective, which is kind of, like, an interesting challenge because you have to, like – it's a little harder to be kind of more authentic because Grendel's Mother Takes the Mic is, like, not about my life or my experiences, and that kind of gives you, like, kind of an easiness because you're pulling from something, but it's not necessarily – Something from your heart, like there is emotion to it, but it's not the same as like taking something that's very personal to you and putting it on the page now I'm kind of trying to push myself to write other types of poetry
0: right like cause I think when you when you write as a character it's it's you and it's not you, mm-hmm. and sometimes you can be more you because it's not you. you have a sh- a screen so you're in college now, you're at Oberlin, and have you always written like when you were young were you a a writer like did you write stories and
1: The joke is that I used to just read so much that eventually I had to like produce some kind of word content. Um, I started out writing mostly fiction and like fantasy fiction because that was what I was reading. But I took a really awesome poetry class in junior year, which was just because I liked the teacher. And I was like, I'll take any class you teach because you seem cool. But then she kind of made me fall in love with poetry. And I got really into that for a couple of years. Um, But now I'm going back a little bit to prose as well and writing fiction, but still writing poetry on the side.
0: And uh, where did you go to school?
1: Yarmouth High School.
0: What was your teacher's name?
1: Marita O'Neill. She's actually a published poet.
0: And it's it, you've definitely always read a lot.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm wearing a white t-shirt that says book nerd in rainbow letters, which was given to me this past birthday by someone who knows me very well. And I was like, that sounds a lot like you.
0: When did you start to read?
1: I remember there was definitely a period in like early elementary school where the teachers were like, oh, we're worried that Lulu isn't reading enough. Like, could you encourage her to read more at home? And then the problem came, like, can she... Please stop reading and do her homework. <laughs> so I don't know. I've always been reading, like, since early middle school. I was, like, always that kid who was lugging around, like, a really thick fantasy book. Or, like, the teachers would be like, you already have a new book. Surely you can't have finished that already. So, like, pretty much all the time. It's just kind of what I do to relax or what I do to learn information or what I do when I'm bored. Basically all the time.
0: <laughs> your, your poetry training came partly from the telling room mm-hmm. and partly from, from Yarmouth High School. And being, uh, uh, you've had a long involvement with the telling room then, right? L- when did you first start?
1: I remember um, that I came here and I did summer camps, like in the physical building of the telling room. I remember coming in and it was just like filled with light and books. And I was like, oh man, this is a nice place. I'm going to have fun.
0: <laughs> and were you were you writing then? Or was it you wanted to do it because you wanted to try writing or your parents thought you might like it?
1: I was pretty solidly like doing writing at that point. I remember in like fifth grade English class, I would get in trouble because I was writing short stories in my notebooks instead of grammar exercises and stuff. So I like, I signed up for it because I was already into writing, but I kind of like drag friends along and be like, this is fun. You should come as well, even if they weren't writers.
0: And so when you got to Oberlin, it seems like to me that your your sense of the craft of writing is is pretty refined. I mean, you've been at it for a long time. And when you're in uh, the literature classes, do you think your perspective is like a writer looking at writing. Are you, uh, like, have part of a writer's mind when you're in a, a an English class?
1: Yeah, I guess so. It's sort of, like, impossible to turn that off. In some way, I'll be reading something, and I'll be like, oh, that's really interesting. Like, I wish I could do that. Um, or I took a class my second semester that was on the archetype of the femme fatale in literature, and that was really interesting to me because I was like, oh, like, what femme fatales have, like, I considered writing or, like, how could this inspire something I want to write? And I'd kind of like be like scribbling ideas in the margins. So I feel like at a certain point, it's like impossible for me to turn off the writer part of my brain, even if it's just like jealousy, being like, oh, I wish I could write something that good.
0: Do you see yourself coming back to Maine when you're done with your education?
1: The end of college feels so far away that it's hard to conceptualize it, even though I'm a fourth of the way through it, I guess. I feel like Maine is something that even if I don't physically live here, it will always be very close to me because... Like growing up here, um, the natural world is just kind of all around you. And it feels like living in a postcard sometimes. And I feel like that will always influence my writing, even if I'm not physically living in Maine. There is one poem in this that I think is influenced by location. And it's not about Maine at all. It's about um, the time I was driving to Ohio as part of college visits and was banned from driving on the highway because I drove over a cone (laughs) because they were doing work on the highway. And I was not allowed to continue driving after that because my mom was like, you're going to crash the car. So I sat in the back of the car and read the entire Iliad because I had nothing else to do. So there is a poem about location, but it's not about Maine.
0: (laughs) Did you write about that?
1: Yes, I did. It's called The Iliad Across Ohio. So that turns up in this. I don't think Maine has much of a presence in the poems that I've written here, but it definitely has a very strong presence in the fiction that I'm writing right now because I naturally set stuff in Maine and the town in the book that I'm currently writing is very closely based off of the town that I live in. And setting is something that I really like playing around in fiction, but I would say it hasn't turned up in my poetry as much, but that's kind of something I want to lean into. So I might not return to Maine like physically after college, but I feel like it will definitely turn up in my writing again and again.
0: Voices of the Future is hosted and conceived by me and produced by Josephine Holtzman and Isaac Kestenbaum at Future Projects with help from Carly Perruccio. The music in this episode is by Jordan Kramer. The series is made possible by the Academy of American Poets with funds from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. To learn more about The Telling Room and its programs, visit tellingroom.org. I'm Stuart Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening.